Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Our economy and financial markets have done a 180 since last year. This was expected, as you know. Most seem to be asking, how bad can it get? Instead of last year's, how high can the stock market go? Let's try to continue our process of aiming six months to a year ahead. Forward thinking helps keep perspective, given the distractions of the 24-hour news cycle drama. Today's focus is what are we likely going to face between now and year-end? Then we'll consider what trends we'll likely consider over through 2023. More specifically, how high are interest rates going to go and why? And the corollary then is how much more of a loss can we expect in our bond portfolios? How low will the stock market go this year? Where are we in the housing cycle? Are we on the verge of a large drop in home prices? What's the impact of all of the above on jobs? And finally, what would have to change to get us back on the comfortable uptrends we enjoyed for the past 10 or so years? The next 15 to 20 minutes are intended to help with financial planning for family well-being leading up to the holiday season and well into next year. Even though many bonds and stocks have dropped in price by 20% or more since January, we need to consider that an additional 20 to 40% drop from today is not out of the question. It's happened before and it can happen again. In today's podcast, we will do our best to arrive at a base case given, despite all the complexity, interrelationships, and a highly volatile global economic, political, and war environment. It would be interesting to bookmark this mid-year podcast and check our expectations against the actual situation toward year-end. We're game if you are. First of all, the Federal Reserve is in a corner. Any path out of this corner has high risks for our financial well-being. They are on track for creating a severe recession by driving up short-term interest rates by a half to three-quarter percent or more in next week's July meeting and in their September meeting. The really bad news is that interest rates are nowhere near where they would need to be to drop our growing inflation, which is now reported over 9% annually across the U.S., but more on this in a few minutes. Our present situation is far more complicated in that out-of-control inflation has morphed into a global issue with many countries reporting price increases this year of between 20 and 80 percent, causing growing debt default across the emerging countries. Food and energy inflation and related shortages are beginning and they're bringing increasing social instability, strikes, riots in some cases, and violence. But these issues are not limited to developing countries. Many countries in Europe are also reporting record high inflation, with similar high rates emerging in Japan, Latin America, and China. We have a global inflation problem, not readily controllable, 
by central banks, even if they were to coordinate their actions, which they are definitely not doing. The Federal Reserve, albeit more than a year ago, a year too late, did start the interest rate increase cycle with the European Central Bank just now beginning, but Japan and China continue to follow their easy money policies. As a result, the U.S. dollar continues to strengthen against the euro and yen as the rapidly increasing U.S. interest rates attract more and more foreign capital inflows that appear to be going into U.S. bank deposits and U.S. real estate investments. Keep in mind more than two-thirds of all the U.S. dollars in existence are held outside the United States. Despite all our economic problems, the U.S. continues to represent the safest and least regulated destination for the world's wealthiest. When the United Kingdom and Europe catch up with the U.S. with their own interest rate increases, then significant amounts of this U.S.-bound cash inflow will reverse. But until then, a strong dollar remains our base case for 2022. Let's recall the relationship between interest rates consumer behavior, and business investment, knowing business investment is responsible for new jobs creation. Low interest rates, such as those we've witnessed for the past decade, make borrowing or leasing new cars more affordable and encourage businesses to buy more buildings and equipment. Consider why this well-grounded theory didn't work as expected during the past 10 or plus years. One reason, bank credit card interest rates have historically been high and have stayed in the 18 to 24 percent area during the decade. Why? One reason is that banks have not had the loan demand from businesses as there's been little business investment. Plus their home mortgage lending, which did greatly expand, made up for the low levels of business investment lending across the United States. Much of the business expansion focused on new supply chains and expansion outside the United States. But let me stay on topic. As interest rates go up, some key drivers of our perceived prosperity go down. Car financing and lease costs go up. Home prices due to much higher monthly mortgages go down. While business borrowing, which has been weak anyway, drops rapidly as fears of recession mount. Add to this overall scenario the fact that full-time employment across the United States only managed to reach pre-COVID levels in recent months, while in some large metropolitan areas, including Los Angeles, full-time employment has only managed to climb back to the levels reached before the 08-09 Great Recession. We are not facing the new recession with strengths that we had in prior recessionary periods. We have not had much of any real growth in the past two decades, but we have had inflation, which boosted the appearance of growth. Now we are in the next recession. With low full-time employment prospects, weak business investment, pumped up house prices, and serious supply chain issues, from baby formula to China manufactured machine replacement parts to energy shortages, and so much more. I'd like to call to your attention the U.S. Empire State Manufacturing Index. I'm doing this because consistently the low points of this index have predicted or forecast general economic conditions six months in advance. The index reached a very low point anticipating the 2001 dot-com bust. It also reached 
a serious low point, anticipating the 08-09 Great Recession. And now we are back at a low point, still declining to well below these low points of the dot-com bust and the 08-09 Great Recession. This index has been declining for the past six months, almost straight down. So this is causing a great deal of concern from my part about what we're going to be facing for the rest of the year. The 21-year-old U.S. Empire State Manufacturing Index is published monthly by the St. Louis Federal Reserve, and it had a high reliability of forecasting economic conditions, good and bad, six months ahead of when they actually occur. In the prior low points I mentioned, the Fed was starting to already pump up the economy with lower interest rates. This is important. Again, the 01 dot-com bust and the 08-09 Great Recession low points of this index were occurring. The Fed was already starting to ease. Now, today, the Fed is starting to increase interest rates. So this time, we have substantially higher risks than the dot-com bubble and Great Recession. To say this in a different way, in prior economic declines, the Fed already began to stimulate the economy at the stage we're in now. And we're in a very different place than we were before, a much more dangerous place, as the worst seems yet to come, as the Fed is just now continuing interest rate increases. No easing is anywhere in sight. So the question today is not when the recovery will start, it's how bad our recession and inflation will get before the Fed can plan a money creation stimulated recovery. We're going to talk a little bit more about inflation, which, as I mentioned, is in a far more dangerous place than either the dot-com or Great Recession periods, but it's also in a far more dangerous place than the late 70s and early 80s. And that was when Fed Chairman Volcker allowed or stimulated interest rates to go up close to 20%. That was also in a period where we began the elements of a recovery, unlike now. The Fed funds rate in the 1980 time frame, plus or minus a few years, actually did hit 20% twice. It had increased from 4 to 5% in the early to mid-1970s, all the way up to 20%. And during that period, the increases were importantly motivated by the inflation rate, which was measured as the U.S. CPI urban consumers rate. And this rate had gone from 3 or 4% in the early to mid-70s, ultimately all the way to 14 to 15% in the 1980-81 period. The 20% interest rates did flatten a lot of the consumer consumption. And as you recall back then, the OPEC countries were demanding higher oil prices, but at the time, versus global demand for oil, there was plenty of supply. OPEC countries obviously won out, and the consumer price index was strongly controlled downward at the time by high Fed funds rates, ultimately reaching in the 2008-2009 Great Recession, the consumer price index actually was recorded negative for a few quarters. And as everybody knows, the federal funds rate went all the way back to about zero. So now, witness the past year or so, the measured U.S. CPI urban consumer price index is now at over 9%. 
And again, the trend line is going straight up, and the Fed's funds rate has barely moved off of the zero point, up to close to 2%. I want to call to your attention that there's a quantitative measure called the U.S. Taylor Rule, T-A-Y-L-O-R, and this was research done in the 1990s, and it relates the interest rate environment, in other words, the Fed funds rate, the amount of interest the Fed funds rate implies or charges versus the inflation rate. And this is a little bit complicated, but I'm going to leave the link for those of you who really want to get into the quantitative aspects. And I know several of our listeners really want more, so this, I promise, will give you more. The Taylor Rule is an equation John Taylor introduced in 1993 that prescribes a value for the Fed's funds rate. In other words, the short-term interest rate targeted by the Federal Open Market Committee based on inflation and economic output. By this rule and formula, short-term interest rates should today be 15% or higher. In other words, very similar to the interest rates that were in effect in the 1980 period, not the 2 to 3% that we see presently. So imagine what a 15% or even 20% we reached back in the prior Volcker tightening period. Imagine what a 15 to 20% interest rate would do to today across the economy for auto financing, homes, business borrowing, and everything else. Consider how far bonds and stocks would drop with 15 to 20% interest rate. Back in the 70s, we saw a 48% drop in the stock market as interest rates moved up. It's not out of the cards to consider that the 20% drop we've seen so far in the stock market and the 10 to 15% drop in the bond market could, by the end of the year, be twice that if the interest rate environment continues up. So either the Federal Reserve stays on its course and we're looking at a substantially lower stock market and bond prices, or the Federal Reserve can pause because of the damage in the economy. That itself could relate or translate to a 10% or so stock price rally, which would be, in my view, short-term, as the inflation would continue onward if the Fed would be pausing. So we don't know exactly where all of this would land, but we should think about the risks we're facing, as these risks could translate into lifestyle-altering change. If you're on the fence or facing personal needs for future cash or liquidity, think about selling some of your assets sooner rather than later and holding high amounts of cash. The jobs market, frankly, looks equally risky. I looked at indicators of future jobs trends, and one that really stood out was the long-term relationship between copper prices and job openings. Copper demand is a historically reliable indicator of economic health. It's a workhorse metal used across industries and consumer applications from plumbing and refrigeration to smartphones and solar panels, to say nothing of the electricity demand for copper cable. Given its wide usage, copper demand rises when factories expand, more homes are built, and more cars are produced. Since the beginning of this year, copper has been dropping in price like a falling rock, and now new jobs creation data is showing a drop. Based on this copper jobs creation relationship, new jobs creation may be on a significant trend 
downward for the rest of 2022 and maybe longer. So you may want to just keep your eye on the copper price and on the new job creation data releases between now and the holidays. All of this in the past is reminiscent of the 1973-1974 bear market, inflation and Fed hiking cycle. And I invite you to Google some of these items, 1973-74 bear market. You'll see that the Fed's funds target rate during this period was between 4 and actually it increased all the way up to 12% in 1974 and ultimately down to six and a half percent in the mid-1975 period. I'm bringing this up because in a period of two years, the stock market as the Fed was increasing the federal funds rate to mitigate the inflation back then, the stock market dropped 48 percent. It can happen. It may happen again. Why? The stock market became really overextended by any measure particularly the past two or three years, which we pointed out in prior podcasts. But to give you an idea how overextended, if we look at the Standard & Poor's 500 stock price index and we divide that by the sales of the companies, so we have a price-to-sales ratio, that ratio reached in the dot-com bust just before the bust 2.3%. And in the stock market sell-off that went through the 08-09 Great Recession, the ratio went all the way down to 0.7. So the stock market dropped, as we know, about two-thirds. Then we've witnessed the large rally. We surpassed the price-to-sales ratio of the dot-com bust back in 2001 or two. We kept going up and we hit a high of about 3.2. And this high has never been seen in data collection. The S&P stock price to sales ratio 3.2, and even with today's decline of about 20% of the stock market, we're at 2.4, which is right at the high point of the dot-com bust before the dot-com bust. And that was before the stock market dropped by two-thirds. So we have only retraced on the S&P 500 stock price to sales ratio. We've only traced back to the prior all-time high, which is to me is very worrisome. Add to that the U.S. oil production issues. We produced a record 13 million barrels a day of oil in 2020. And as everybody knows, without investment in pipelines, without investment in new offshore and onshore government drilling properties, oil production has dropped. It's actually dropped by about 1.2 million barrels a day. It's from 13 million down to 11.8. And that drop is being made up by the administration's sale of 1 million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, if we use that petroleum reserve to make up all the demand of the United States, that 700 million barrels would maybe be useful for a number of months. By selling 1 million barrels a day, we deplete the entire U.S. strategic oil reserve in about two years, less than two years. So this is a very short-term solution. It has kept the oil price, in my view, from really spiking up, but it's not a solution to the oil price issues. We'll talk about oil price in a minute. Even though China will fare the worst in spiking inflation, slowing growth in rising interest rates, and stagflation, that's of little solace to us Americans. 
According to results of a stress test of 20,000 companies conducted by Standard & Poor's Global Ratings, they indicate that over 90% of the sample of their stress testing was made up of unrated companies, covering a total debt of $37 trillion, which is about 41% of global corporate debt. And from that, they deduced that in the environment we're looking at, China would fare worse than we do. But that's, again, of little solace. Speaking of interest rates and home sales, the claim that interest rate spikes imply that real estate will decline is very old school. And it presumes that everyone is buying on leverage. But some changes have occurred since the last housing boom. In 2021, cash sales represented 25% of existing home sales in the metropolitan markets. Nationally, buyers paid cash for almost 15% of the homes sold in 2021. That's across the United States. Getting more specific, in Florida, the Tampa market was even hotter. Single-family homes saw 45% more buyers paying cash than in 2020. The number of condo buyers paying cash went up 33%. While more people paid cash, the inventory dropped with 29% fewer listings of single-family homes in the third quarter of last year. Condo listings dropped even more, 52% fewer available. And speaking to a local realtor, houses in excess of a million dollars in the Tampa area were 95% cash deals. So home real estate is maybe a relatively stronger area of our economy in the next year, even though it will become weak. With higher interest rates, it will particularly affect the first-time home buyers, unfortunately, and it will particularly affect the many renters who are aspiring home buyers but unable to afford the new mortgage amounts. In this podcast, we covered a lot, but here's a quick summary. The Fed is in a corner and can only keep raising interest rates in the short term, the next two or three months. The damage to the bond and stock markets may become much more severe with the need for the Fed to pause, which could generate a large counter-trend rally in those markets. Unfortunately, inflation will continue unless oil prices substantially drop. My bet is sometime in the fall the Fed will pause, but I don't see oil prices dropping or even staying where they are now. In past recessions, oil demand has not significantly dropped, so I don't see that as a likelihood this time. Oil supplies are global and are able to increase even without the Russian war, especially without the Russian war. The war almost guarantees much higher prices are in front of us. U.S. residential real estate is facing declines, but not as severe as in the Great Recession in 08-09, except for the impact on new and aspiring home buyers, particularly the markets that have greatly appreciated during COVID. And I'll summarize, the global oil price is the elephant in the room. The Biden administration and the Fed are placing all their hopes on lower global oil consumption and that's including a global recession or even worse, and they're placing all their chips on increasing OPEC's oil production, which we understand recently OPEC is unable or unwilling to do. The administration knows that oil, natural gas, and their related products strongly impact the consumer price index calculation, not only through gasoline for cars, but diesel fuel for trucks, jet fuel for airlines, fuel for ships, home heating for the upcoming winter for homes and businesses, natural gas for utilities, and importantly, natural gas for fertilizer production. The energy index rose 41% over the past 
12 months. Gasoline index increased 60% over that span. The largest 12-month increase in that index since March of 1980. The index for electricity rose 14%, the largest 12-month increase since the period ending April of 2006. The index for natural gas increased 38% over the last 12 months, the largest such increase since the period ending October of 2005. Oil is the elephant in the room. And if oil prices continue their upward trend toward $200 a barrel and more, as some oil analysts predict, global inflation will become so big of a problem that today's economic issues would seem tame. The Fed has no tools to control hyperinflation, and out-of-control increasing oil prices will move us along, along with the stock market, into a disaster scenario, I really am sorry to say. Now is the time to focus on family financial protection. The risks for continuing inflation and social instability are increasing, as no one group by itself is capable of resolution. And sadly, global collaboration is getting further from our grasp. The good news is that we as a nation have been through global economic and monetary challenges many times before, and we'll get through this one eventually. In the meantime, I'm preparing for a more difficult bond and stock market between now and year end. I'm willing to hold more cash now to buy cheaper financial assets next year. So be careful, be cautious, and please lower any risks that you see. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin, this podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.